We're in Ezekiel tonight. I think what we'll do is we'll chug along in Ezekiel and if we get to a place where we need to cry uncle, we'll, um, we'll take a little bit of a break. Ezekiel 18. Let me read the first four verses for us. Hear the holy word of God. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins will die. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, you are perfect in every way. We pray tonight as we consider your word that your correction of your sinning people would um, convict us of our sins when we seek to correct you, Lord, or guide you or direct you, or we grumble at your providence, we grieve over the good of our neighbor, and we're not content, Lord, nor do we properly indict ourselves when we ourselves are the ones doing the sinning. Lord God, take away the blinders from our eyes that we would not be able to deceive our own hearts and that we would believe the true truth in you and the true truth about ourselves, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would be more obedient children by it. We pray it in the Redeemer's name. Amen. It's a large chapter. You've got, what, 32 verses And really tonight, I want to mainly look at or unpack uh, verse 2. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? We're going to look at that, and then later, within the body of the sermon, I'm going to look at verse 25. So basically, chapter 18, as lengthy as it is, really, I would divide it in two, I think, properly, there, there might even be five or six ways, subdivisions within the text. I think Matthew Henry has six, 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 divi- six sections. But I think if I were to divide it thematically, you have the charge by God's people against God, which is seen in verse 2, and also verse 25. So this is the implied charge of God's people against God, God, and then stated in verse 25, our way, our word is right, your way, your word is wrong. And so they're, they're, they're actually indicting God, um, both implicitly and explicitly. And then the rest of the chapter is God's response to the people. Even here, he begins to respond. But I'm going to take it thematically. I'm going to take the grumbling of God's people against God. They're accusing God of doing wrong. And then we're going to take next week, if we have next week, God's going to answer back and say, I'm not the one doing wrong. I'm always just. If a person's innocent, he won't bear his punishment. If a person is guilty, uh, they will. 
And so the implicit charge is what we've seen in verse, as I say in verse um, 2. Uh, Ezekiel, the, the writing about the same time, you have Isaiah writes, what, 800? But uh, a contemporary uh, prophet to um, Ezekiel would be Jeremiah. And evidently, this proverb of the, the parents are the ones that sin and the children are the one who have to, ones that have to pay the penalty. That's the whole idea of the grapes and the teeth setting on edge. That evidently was a very popular uh, proverb, as obnoxious as it is. I'm going to read two places, Jeremiah uh, 31, and I think Jeremiah writes Lamentations from Lamentations 5, just to show you that the people really did imbibe this accusatory proverb, accusatory against God. Um, Jeremiah 31, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster, that's the Babylonian captivity, so I'll watch over them again to build and to plant, that's the repat, they're bringing them back, declares the Lord, in those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity, each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And then Lamentations, chapter 5, shows us clearly this is what the proverb means. 5-7, Our fathers sinned, and they are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. So today, we're going to look at the children of God accusing God of being unjust, doing wrong. And next week, Lord willing, as I say, uh, the answer. Let me kind of begin unpacking this really by posing a question. Does God judge the parent for, does God judge the child, excuse me, for the sins of the parent? And what I mean by that is, does God punish the children for the sins or the crimes of the parent? Since this is something of a thematic sermon, I want to bring our attention to two places in Scripture, Deuteronomy and and then uh, later in Ezekiel. Deuteronomy 24, these are clear um, places in scripture. So does God punish the children uh, for the sins or the crimes of their parents? Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Very clear. Ezekiel eighteen eighteen. later in the chapter, God's going to say exactly the same thing. As for his father, because he's, he's dealing with sons' fathers, sons' fathers. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness, and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins shall die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So the Bible says clearly that God does not, and I'm using the word punish as different than I'm using chastise. Chastise is fatherly correction. Punish is judicial. It's penal. Um, God does not punish the son or the daughter for the sins of their father or mother. And the rest of the chapter, Ezekiel, 
God will say exactly that. Each person will be punished for their own sins. Now, I want to bring us to another very well-known verse because we say that the Bible doesn't contradict the Bible. There are places in the Bible that look like they contradict. And since the Bible doesn't, because it is one unified author, we, we need to, I think, the, from our own Confession of Faith, chapter 1, maybe paragraph 9, I think, I think, we call the analogy of faith. The clearer passages help us understand the related less clear. That's why I read those two clear passages. So Exodus 20. Here's another place in the Bible. This is the um, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Give us the, the, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, here's where it appears that we just contradicted what we just read. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to argue, because of the unity of the scripture, that this passage does not, did, does not contradict what we just read. So the idea here of visiting the iniquity of the sinful parents, in this case, the idolatrous parents, upon the third and the fourth generation of their children, the notion is that though God does not punish a child for the particular crimes or sins of the parent, the sins of the parent do adversely affect uh, their children. If your father or your mother is an idolater and they teach you to commit idolatry, you will not be punished for their idolatry. You will be punished for your idolatry. If your father is, say, a drunkard and a, a, a lie about, he's lazy, he's allergic to work, will that have deleterious effects on your family? Yes, but it's not the same thing as being punished for your father's drunkenness or profligacy. So if you are an innocent son or daughter, God will not punish you. If the child is innocent, they'll not pay for the sins of their guilty parent. So we start with that right away. And that's the charge. What the people are charging, um, what's going on here is this parable and the time frame, you remember, is during the Babylonian captivity. God told the people, since you're living like pagans and you think it's better to, to worship the gods of the pagans, you're going to go off to live with the pagans for 70 years and then I'm going to take you back. And so the sin of God's people will actually be used in God's hand uh, to both chastise the believers and to judge the unbelievers among the people. And so at this time, during the captivity of Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, excuse me, this is the proverb. The fa fathers eat sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. The idea is that the children of Israel, the people of God, they are complaining to God and they're complaining against God. And what they're saying is, our fathers sinned and we are having to pay uh, for it. And so the people of God are indicting God as unjust. And I, I want to make that clear. They're not just merely complaining to God about a hard situation. They're actually, in essence, complaining to God against God. So I, I want to say that right away, lest we, we think, well, can I never complain when I'm in pain? Yes, of course you can, but we should be careful that when we're in pain, we don't end up sinning against God, which these people did. And so what they're saying is, um, our parents sinned, 
we're paying the price. What was that thing that we used to say to our to our parents when we were kids? And um, if you if your parents had more than you as a child, if there were a few, we used to say it all the time, which was almost a sure spanking in my house. That's not fair. That's not fair. And so, or another thing that we see the children of God doing is, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. Two things that, like, if you hear that, you think, oh boy, how, it's kind of ugly, it's kind of bratty. And that's exactly what the children of God are saying. This is, it's not fair. And it's not my fault. And, and what they're saying is, it's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. My mom, my dad, it's the previous generation's fault. And then we'll see, really, they're charging God. Uh, it's your fault. You're being unjust. Was it Rabbi Kushner? I forget the fellow that wrote the book. When, um, was it When Bad Things Happen to Good People? I think that's the book. It's really the essence behind this common Proverbs. When bad things happen to good people. A Reformed Christian could never write that book because he lives in Rome. He lives in the book of Romans so much. And it would be, well, what good person? We're only good as we're found in the good one, Jesus Christ. But behind that, that title, when bad things happen to good people, is really this. We're good people, and why are these bad things happening to us? You know, the difficulty with that is the person saying that is, um, I would argue, one, I don't want to say self-deceived, but I, I want to close to being self-deceived. And the other is they're not being biblical. So one, they're not honest with themselves, about themselves. And two, they're not being biblical. They're not searching the scriptures. I know that for a fact. So these folks are saying, why are these bad things happening to such good people? And God later is going to answer in the text, well, actually, you're not good. You're like your father. You're like your mother. They're sinning. They sinned. But you're you're sinning, and and um, so so that that's really what's going on, and what makes this sin we believe, as Reformed Christians, that we can aggravate our sin, we can make it uglier. And I mention this a lot. Um, there's a couple of catechism questions, larger catechism questions that have been really helpful to me over the years. Ninety nine is one of them. How to read the Ten Commandments? Very profitable. One fifty one is another one how we aggravate our sins against God, how we make them uglier. By who's doing the sinning, by the person we're sinning against, by the type of sin, and by the occasion or the day of sin. And here, these people are, are the, the professing children of God. And, and they're sinning, actually, ultimately, one against their parents, and then they're sinning against God. And so just the nearness um, is getting uglier and uglier. And then the accusation, their, their actual crime we're right, you are wrong, your word is wrong, verse 25, our verse word is right, verse 25, um, you are being unjust, verse 2, and, and, and you and against us who are essentially righteous people. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you look at the accusation that God is being unjust, remember Oh, I don't know what it was. It was the parable of the minas or the or parable of the, the, the talents. Remember the one guy? He buries the talent in the sand. And so he comes to the master. And he says, I know that you are a, an austere man. And I, I remember the Greek word there is scleros. It's a hard skin flint. And, and that's what essentially what they're saying to God. You're a hard skin flint. It's so, it's so ugly. 
And it, it, it's, it makes it even uglier, as I say, because these are the children of God. You would think, well, if it's a Hittite or, or, or so on, and they say, oh, the God of the Bible is obnoxious. Well, you would expect that. They're professing unbelievers. They're God-haters. They're Christ-haters. They hate God. And so we're not surprised when they say something hateful against God. Have you ever heard a, a child say to the mother and the father, I hate you. I hate. Have you ever heard a child say, I hate you to their mother or their father? You almost want to jump when you hear. Many of us have heard that. Many of us have probably even said it to our kids. Um, again, my parents probably had a technique to make you stop that. But it, it's, it's scary when you hear that. That's essentially what's going on here. This is the Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. This is the evil heart of unbelief. And the unbelief is expressed in a rejection of God's government, in rejection of God's word, but there's a bitterness. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a bitterness. And, and un, unbelief is often bitter. Unbelief can't see things rightly, can't see God rightly, can't see that God is good, that their life in God is good. And it's all bitter. It's very ugly. If you've been around people that are super bitter, they're, um, it, it, it's, it can be a challenge. And so these people are bitter, and they're professing children of God, and they're charging their heavenly Father with sin against them. It's just, it's the blindness of sin, and it's self-deception. And I just want to look, unpack, what do we learn by this? Professing children of God, charging God with wrong, and they're saying it in this proverb, and they're talking back to God. Um, whatever we believe, in our hearts, what we really think about God in our minds, it will eventually come out of our mouth. What you believe about God in Christ, what you really believe at one time or another will in fact come out of your mouth. You will tell the truth. Whether a mountaintop experience will, 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 will cause you to say what you really believe, who your real God is, Really here in this, we see it in the crucible. I think who, who we are in the crucible is oftentimes who we really are. But it comes out of your mouth. You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 2 says essentially, and I'm going to read it in just a bit, but it essentially says that our words are a window into our soul. Someone says, you can't judge my heart. Well, I can't look in your inner being. That's true. The Bible says only God can look at the inside of your heart. We, we, man looks at the outward. But it's not altogether completely accurate. We can know to some measure of truthfulness the estate, both the being of our heart and the well-being of our heart by the words that come out of our mouth. This is what Jesus says. And this is what these people are saying. They're saying, God, we are right. God, you are wrong. Our word is right. Your word is wrong. Your providence has been unjust. And we are righteous. Those are if the creature and then the professing believer indicting a God who is not capable of sin for being unjust is just off the charts obnoxious. And that's testifying who the, in what they are spiritually. Um, I would argue that they're unbelievers. But Matthew 12. This is the, the words of our mouth. It will reflect the state of our soul. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, it'll make the tree bad and its fruit bad. 
for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That's what we have here. What they really think about God, what they really think about God in Christ, what they really think about themselves and their parents does in fact come out of their mouth. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. This is what Jesus says. And this is applicable to these people that are embittered against God and his providence and his word. Jesus says, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of what? Judgment. For by your words you will be justified. By your words you will be condemned. This is not attaching any salvific merit to our words. The notion is, one, we are owning God in Christ, and the other, we are rejecting God in Christ. And that's what these people are doing. They are rejecting um, God. So charging God with wrongdoing is a sign of unbelief and bitterness. So unbelief will come out of our, our mouths. That's the first lesson. The second lesson I want us to learn from their grumbling against God is in this one we know experimentally. We all do it. We know it both biblically as we study the Bible, but all of us have done this. Um, Unbelief not only comes out of our mouth, but unbelief regularly seeks to shift the blame. Unbelief regularly seeks to shift the blame, which is what this proverb is showing us. Um... They're trying, these people are trying to shift the culpability for their own sin by placing the blame of their sin upon someone else. You see this oftentimes in, um, well, certainly with children and certainly in regular marriage counseling. Pre-marriage counseling, they don't know enough to know this yet. Regular marriage counseling, this is when they start to figure out how to, to shift the blame. So why did such and so happen? Well, it's not my fault. It's your fault. Why did so, it's, it's your fault. This is shifting the blame. That's what these people are doing. We're, we're being punished. It's not our fault. It's our parents. It's the previous generation. It's God's fault. It's not our fault. Where do we see sin trying to shift culpability by placing it on, a, on, on another being? Where do we first see that? Remember? In, in, in Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve sin against God. And Eve says what? It was a serpent. The devil made me do it. And then God speaks to Adam. And what does he say? It was my wife. My wife made me do it. And then he goes one step further in shifting the blame. The wife that you gave me. Eve says, the devil made me sin. Adam says, my wife made me sin. And Adam says what these people are really saying. And you made me sin. It's your fault. And so when you listen to unbelief and you listen to bitter unbelief, particularly when people are in afflictive providences, which these people are in, you listen. You listen. Ultimately, these people are indicting God with wrongdoing. It's your fault. It's your fault my body's broken. It's your fault I'm poor. It's your fault. It's your fault. You're in the wrong. Oh, now this should should make us tremble as we hear it from another person 
But when we start to grumble and we start to complain and we start to shift the blame, the reason I'm this, the reason I'm that, it's not me. It's not me. It's you. Behind that, when kiddos do it with their parents, who gave the parents to the kiddos? God. It's an attack on God's government. And I do want to get to that business. So what we see is the people doing the shifting and, and the people upon whom they're trying to indict for the sin. And it, I think it is instructive that in this common parable, the, the parents sin and the children have to pay for it. The parents eat the grapes, the sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's what's going on. What you see here is the children are blaming the parents. Our parents sin, and we have to go off to Babylonian captivity. I would argue this. I've been a, I'm a parent, and I'm a grandparent. And it's just anecdotally, and from what I can read from the Bible, it is instructive that you see the children blaming the parents. I would argue this. Most often, I can't quantify it, but most often, you don't see the parents blaming the child. More often, you see the child blaming the parents for some kind of distressing situation or sin or something like that. It's the child will blame the parents very infrequently will you see the parents blaming or judging the child, even for the sins of the child. Many, many parents, moms and dads included, maybe more, more so moms, but I don't know that. This is probably dads are in there too. Many parents, rather than even indicting their child for their child's sin, what will they do? It will be anybody and everybody else's fault, but not little Buttercup. If Buttercup comes home, and he uses a foul word, or he's smelling like McGinty's bar rim, or what have you. You think, not my little buttercup. Bad company corrupts good morals. What bad company corrupts your good morals, buttercup? We never say that buttercup is the bad company, <laughs> and buttercup is corrupting their friends. We're always trying to pretend, generally speaking. And I could give you an example from just recently. My wife and I were worshiping the other day, and she said, did you say in preaching that there's a school shooting every week? I said, I think I did, but what I meant was there's a kind of a mass shooting every week. I think someone shot up a hospital just the other day. So this is something that goes on. From the school shooting in Texas, it was the mother and the father did exactly what I'm saying. The mother said something to the effect, and I'm going to paraphrase it, school shooter in Texas, um, that don't be so quick to judge my, my son. He had his reasons. That's the quote. He had his reasons. That was the, the mother. And then the father said something, and I'm going to get very close. He used this word. Don't judge my son too severely and condemn him as a monster, quote unquote monster, because you all don't know him. Don't, don't judge him too severely. He must have had his reasons. And don't judge him as a monster. You don't know him. That's exactly what I'm arguing. Many times us parents will go to great lengths rather than allowing the child to own the child's sin. But, the, but on the other side, what we see is what we see here. I would argue it's far more common for the child to look the parent in the face, particularly when they get um, anywhere from 18, 15 to 35, 15 to 75. Uh, when they get that old, they look at the parent in the face and say, the reason I'm the way I am, you. 
You are the reason. Am I right with that? And that's what we have here. The children are seeing, we're in Babylon, not because we're bad. We're in Babylon because our, our parents are bad. Now, is that a breach? Is that a breach of, of any of the commandments to, to openly charge your father or your mother with sin? Is that a breach of any of God's commandments? Yeah. I can't say categorically in every instance when we publish the sins of our parents. I can't say in every instance it's categorically sin. Some may may be instructive. But it it comes very, 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 very close to breaking the fifth commandment. To honor your father and your mother. It is not honoring to father and mother to say, you know what? My father and mother was X, Y, Z. They're the sinners. They're the offenders. And here's all their various offenses. Who, who was the two boys? Was it Shem and Japheth? Shem and Japheth, I think. They walked backwards to poor old Noah, who was laying around in his birthday suit after he enjoyed some too much wine. And the two boys walked backwards with a cloak or a coat, coat and they threw it over their dad. That's right. But I think it was Ham, the other brother, and what did he do? Hey, look at Dad. They did something like that. That's an obnoxious sin, to publish the sins of our parents, even if they're true. And I would argue this is a breach against the love of God and against the love of our neighbor. And certainly there's a filial closeness. So they're doing that. Um, The Bible says this, in 1 Corinthians, we read thir- someone read 1 Corinthians 13 just a, a few weeks ago. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek his own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. So he, here are the people of God going, it was our parents. It's the previous generation. It's you. Oh, beloved, be careful. This is the evil heart of unbelief. Be careful about evil heart of unbelief. Be careful about bitterness. Be careful about grumbling. And be careful about being that person who literally is sitting there with, with an iron plate in a diamond stylus going, I am remembering every awful thing you ever did to me forever. That is that. That's not Christian. That's not Christian. That's not God, the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's not faith. That is rank, obnoxious sin. Even if we did do it, love is supposed to do what? Cover it over. Cover it over. We think, well, my parents did these obnoxious things. I'm going to write it down. Do you know how many obnoxious things we've done to God and he still loves us in Christ? Way more than our folks did to us. Way more. So the person that says, you're the problem, not me. Boy, they need a they they need a gut check. <laughs> they need to look at themselves in the mirror. They need to look to God in Christ. But they, they, and I would argue they make it even uglier when they say we're in Babylon, but it was our parents who sinned. Babylonian captivity is seventy years. How old do you think their folks are at this time? They're either old or they're dead. They're blaming either their old parents or their dead parents. Remember I said, have you ever heard a kid say, I hate you to their mother and father? Super ugly. Kids can do it at like five to whatever, 15 or whatever. Imagine seeing a 50-year-old kid say to their parents, 
you are obnoxious and I don't love you and you're a sinner and I'm righteous. 50-year-old kid to 75-year-old parent. What would you think? Oh, oh. It makes the, the little kiddo look like child's play. It's, it's so grotesque. But this is, in fact, what the people of God are doing. So they blame the parents. That's a common shift, blame shifting. But they also do this. It, it, it's kind of a, they're blaming the previous generation. So you have specifically the parents, and then we could say generally the previous generation. And it, it's another technique of shame, blift, blame shifting. It would be like this. Um, George brought up some things in Sunday schools. Let, let me use that example. We could say, well, the reason we have afflictive providences in this country is because our forefathers practiced slavery. They were the bad slavers. We are the good non-slavers. They were bad. We have to suffer these afflictive providences. Again, it's just the ability to deceive ourselves and the ability to shift blame we're expert at. And then God puts this here for our instruction because he's going to come along and he's going to say, I don't accept it. I don't accept you shifting blame because he's going to say, if you're righteous, you're not going to get punished. But if you're not righteous, you are going to get punished. What I, I, I want to see is, um, I want to see something else when we look at this. Um, I want to see the, when they're criticizing God, they're suffering through the hardships of the Babylonian captivity. I think this is informative for us. Um, the crucible, I would argue, afflictive providences, reveals a lot about us. It's easy to be a believer when you're, everything is going swell. If you're healthy and you have a little bit of pocket change and your kiddos are healthy, because even if you're healthy and if I touch your kid in any way, it's, it, it's hard plowing. I, I sometimes think it's, it's harder plowing when the ones we love, are, especially our children, our grandchildren, are going through afflictive providences, we're, we're in it with them. But my point is, is this. Afflictive providences, which they're, in, they're enduring, it reveals a lot about us. It reveals a lot about our heart towards God and Christ, the, the state and the well-being of our faith, if we have any. And so who we are in the crucible is going to come out. And they're in the crucible. And I do want to, I don't want to, I'm not excusing their sins, but I don't also want to look at them and say, well, I cannot believe these people. Um, I can't believe they're so obnoxious to God. I would never be so obnoxious to God. My faith is so much stronger. I love Jesus so much. I would never say anything so ugly to God. Oh, beloved, be careful about that. Sometimes we think we're stronger than we are until we get put in a position that our faith is being tested. Um, everyone, when I was a boy, kids fought all the time. Um, I'm not arguing that boys should fight, but they fought all the time when I was a kiddo. In my mind, theoretically, I was like the best fighter in the world in my mind until I actually had to square off with someone and then I ended up dusting off things and <laughs> putting my, <laughs> put my body back together because the theory of what I was in my mind was incredible. And then when it came down to the actual process, <laughs> it was abysmal. We think before our faith is tested, I would never grumble against God's providence. I would never indict God with wrongdoing. I, I'm just, I love God so much. Well, what happens if God puts you in the crucible? Look at the crucible that they're in. They're in the Babylonian captivity. And think of what led up to that. 
Judah is overrun by heathen. These, and I'm reading a book right now on the Japanese part of the campaign from the army perspective. Like, I can't put this book down. I read it until 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning. It is so off the charts horrible. I'm not saying that the Nazis or the Germans were a walk in the park, but this is horrible stuff. It's kind of what these people are going through. And Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is desecrated. All of the, remember the earlier chapters? All of the bloodshed, all of the famine that goes along with it. And now these people in this crucible, 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 they say, it's your fault. It's our parents' fault. You're not doing right. Again, I'm not excusing them. But I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to say to someone in a crucible when we're not in the crucible, I would never do that. Be very careful. Be very careful. Many, is, many of us have found out when our faith is tested, when God takes away something pleasant. These people are losing children, they're losing family, and then when God sends something painful onto, onto them, then the truthfulness of our faith will come forward. The criticisms, as I say, they're charging God with being unjust, but they're charging God the two, two, two aspects of God's government is, are unjust. One is providential government, and then second, his word, which is verse 25. So verse 2, your providence towards us is unjust. And verse 25, your word is not right. Our word is right. And they're arguing that all of the hard things that they're going through, um, they, didn't, they didn't deserve him. Um, I, I've mentioned that the afflictive providences will sometimes test our faith. Both pleasant things and painful things test our faith. We think, well... On a mountain, I could walk closer with God. When everything is pleasantness in our life, does it produce necessarily in us a Godward, Christward, holy, holy, heavenward life? Does it necessarily? I think Israel was called Jeshurun. Certainly the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3. Prosperity is sometimes not very good for our faith. But sometimes afflictive providences also reveal um, something t- to us um, it, it reveals that we weren't, weren't really loving God as our creator, redeemer. We were loving the creature. And sometimes God in his afflictive providence shows us that. That you didn't love me for me. You loved me for the beautiful children. You loved me for the health. You loved me for the wealth. And as soon as I touched those things, you revealed your true heart towards me. And they're charging God with wrong. And so the real question has to come with when God takes away something we love and, 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 and some, some pleasant thing and when God says pain, sends pain in its place, what do we say to God and what do we say about God? What do you say to God and about God when, when you're like Job on an ash heap? Um... Can you still worship God when all around is this? I'm going to read to you a believing husband correcting, and I'm going to say it, I'm sorry to say it, ladies, rebuking his erring wife. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, 
Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put your fourth hand forth now and touch his bone and flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he smote Job and he soars with sores and boils from the sole of his head to the crown of his the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of pottery to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And this is what his wife said. This is really what the essence of the proverb that the people are saying in verse two. The wife said, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And what did the believing husband say? You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. John Flavel. Yeah, John Flavel. It's Instructions to Mourners. I forget which volume. He has like a six or seven volume set. I forget which one. Maybe volume five. It's, re, it's renamed uh, by the Banner of Truth something else. I forget. But it's Counsel or Instruction to Mourners. He has a section in there where he has six or seven or eight things that show us when our sorrow is inordinate. All sorrow is not righteous or right sorrow. These people are grieving, but they're grieving inordinately. Their grief is causing them to sin. Their grief is sin. When we grieve so much at the loss of something pleasant and the acquisition of something painful, when we grieve so much that we indict God, that's sin. And it, 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 and it makes us unable to accept any corrections or lessons that God is sending us at the time. And we forget the kind of duty that we owe to God. David says, it's good for me when I was afflicted. And, and, and it's good to sit under the affliction and to be still. So we can almost judge whether we're responding rightly or wrongly to afflictive providences in this way. Um, it's an inordinate grief. And as I mentioned, verse 25, if you look, look at verse 25, that's the express statement. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? It's, is it not your ways that are not right? The people of God earlier, I forget which chapter in Ezekiel, they actually taunt God, like you're not going to do it. You're not going to judge us. It's always a bad idea to taunt God. It's, it's what is it, First Peter, Second Peter? So where is the promise of Christ coming? Oh yeah, judgment day. Oh, judgment day. That's really going to happen. Oh, God's holy. He's going to judge sin. Oh, I don't think so. Always a bad idea to mock God like he's not going to make good on his word. And so their mocking God actually goes to now grumbling or complaining or dighting God saying, oh yeah, so where's your judgment? And God says, it's right here. And now they're complaining. Very bad idea. Um, and again, this is... This stuff that they're doing, the bitter heart of unbelief, um, the grumbling, the blame shifting, blaming anybody and their brother. And now it's an open denial of God's word. God, your word is not right. Um, This is where the evil heart of unbelief and bitterness, this is where bitterness will take us. Bitterness will take a professing Christian to deny the Bible. The Bible's not right because I'm dealing with so much pain. Very, very scary um, things. Another thing that we see about this evil heart of unbelief and this grumbling and complaining and bitterness, that it's evangelical. It's a common proverb. These people that are busy blaming their folks, blaming the previous generation, blaming God, guess what they're doing? They're teaching people this. It's a common proverb. We read it in Jeremiah. We read it in Limitations. 
They're teaching other people to have unbelief and to be bitter. Yeah, it's not our fault. Yeah, right. It's not our fault. It's our folks' fault. Right. It's God's fault. Yes. Faith is evangelical. We indict ourselves and we vindicate God and we tell people about the mercy of God in Christ. That's evangelical. But unbelief is evangelical. You hang around with bitter people, what's going to happen? Grumble, 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 complain, complain, bitter, bitter, unbelief, unbelief, blame shifting. Everybody and their brother is a sinner. Everybody else is at fault. I'm not at fault. What's going to happen? They're teaching you to do that. They're teaching you to be a grumbler and a complainer against God. And it, it adds to their sin. I want to end with this. I know we were just looking at their indictment. Notwithstanding the terrible affliction they're going through, as sinners, let's just con- conclude thinking this. As sinners, what doth every sin deserve? What doth every sin deserve? Every sin deserves the wrath and the curse of God, both in this life and that which is to come. If we believe that, does God treat us as our sins deserve? Can we ever say, it was my mom, it was my dad, I'm pure as the driven snow. Mother and father taught me, what was it, Audrey Hepburn drank gin like mother's milk. Remember, Dr. Doolittle was teaching her how to, the rain in Spain falls mainly in the whatever. And she said, like mother's milk. Well, let's say they drank gin like mother's milk. Well, let's say you drank gin like mother's milk. Can, can any of us say, our folks are bad, we are good? Can we really say that in honesty? And can we ever say in honesty, God treats us worse than our sins deserve? Now, as believers in Jesus, we get no wrath. There's no wrath. There's no condemnation for believers. So let's just apply it to, condom- to, to correction or discipline. Does God ever discipline us as our sins deserve? Is he ever excessively, inordinately, unjustly harsh to us? Cannot every believer say, even in afflictive providences, as I read with Jody, she was crying, I was crying. She's cocked over in a chair. It's pitiful. And she said, the Lord is so gracious to me. Can we not say that? Can we not say that? Can we not say with David, our lines, lives, even in the hardest of providences, have fallen to us in beautiful places. Beloved, I pray that this ugly example, this ugly example in the Bible, it churns our stomach enough so that we would indict ourselves for our own sin. It wouldn't always be look at you, look at you. And really, we would be reluctant to publish the sins of another human being and especially reluctant to blame any other human being for our own sins, especially our moms or our dads. Leave that to the Lord. If, you, if, that, if, if our folks sinned against us, we sinned against them, leave it to the Lord. Don't shift all of your bad stuff upon your folks or the previous generation. And may we, if ever rises up in our bosom, to be angry at God. May we put our hands over our mouths and say, God, forgive me. God, have mercy. Uh, 
May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.